Thanks for joining us on the Cork Creative Podcast. With this podcast, we hope to shine a light on the great work being done in local businesses. If you would like to learn more, please visit corkcreative.ie. In the third part of our Craft Brewers and Distiller series, where we focus on wonderfully crafted drinks, Patrick speaks to husband and wife team, Daniel and Geraldine, from Stonewell Cider and Novel Apple Wines. Geraldine, born and bred in a French vineyard in the Loire Valley, soon found alcohol and winemaking slowly creep back into her life when she and Daniel moved back with their young children to Daniel's family homestead and its orchard, where in 2010 he founded Stonewell Cider, the first Irish craft cider in Ireland. Stonewell is now well established across Ireland and a number of European countries. Geraldine has since branched out into her own brand, Novel Apple Wines. Together, they have catapulted the humble apple to new heights. In this episode, Daniel and Geraldine educate Patrick on all things cider and apple wine, the perpetual motion of research and design, maintaining a strong profile, the collaborative nature of the craft drinks industry, sustainability and rebuilding and growing their business after the pandemic. You're very welcome to Core Creative, Geraldine and Daniel. Thanks very much for having us. So folks, tell us your story. Tell us the story of Stonewell Cider. Stonewell Cider probably had its origins back where I grew up in Noble. We had a small orchard, which I would have made juice with my father and mother many years ago. And life got underway. I came back here in 2007 with my wife, Geraldine, and two children at that stage. And I was looking to turn my hand to something. There was the orchard still there. I started pressing apples. And in 2009, Ireland consumed more cider per capita than any other country in the world. So I think it was about 19 litres per head. And at the time, we only had industrial cider producers and imports. And I thought, this is crazy. We've got a climate which is conducive to growing apples. We've got lots of cider drinkers, quite obviously. There's got to be something better to do here. And that's really where the idea came from. Brilliant. And for the uninitiated, and I just definitely count myself as one of those, explain the process of making cider to the audience of the podcast, if you would, please, from tree to table, so to speak. I'll do my best. So there, there are different ways of making cider but I will focus on the way we make it and the way I would classify real and traditional cider to be made. Mm -hmm. So effectively, one harvests the fresh apples and they can be different varieties because different varieties give different flavours. They are then milled and from the milling process onwards, effectively, it's just like making wine. So you're applying pressure in in the form of a press. There are lots of different types of press. We use modified grape presses which apply pressure to that milled apple, which is known as a pomace. And from that, you extract the fresh juice. And then with the fresh juice, depending upon how you wish to make it, either via a wild yeast fermentation or a cultured yeast fermentation, that is then added to the juice and it converts the naturally occurring sugars within the fresh apple juice into alcohol, CO2 and uh, fermentation esters. And once you've achieved attenuation, which is basically where all of the sugars have been converted to alcohol. You have a dry, in other words, no residual sugar, still cider. And that's what we call a base cider. And it forms one of the component parts of the cider, which we would blend. So we would use different apple varieties to make different base ciders. Mm -hmm. And then we would blend those base ciders together to, to give a, a more comprehensive, complete and complex flavor profile. And then the question is, as I mentioned, all of that cider is dry. How is it sweetened? So a lot of 
producers would add sugar. We tend to use fresh apple juice. So what we do is we go and we press more fresh apples, we extract the fresh juice. And believe it or not, a litre of fresh apple juice will have on average in this climate between 100 and 110 grams of sugar per litre. So we put some of that fresh juice back into the blended base ciders. And that's how you obtain the final finished product, which is then basically bottled and labelled and brought back to the unit before it's dispatched to our customers. Did that make sense? It made sense to me. I'm, I'm now consider myself better educated. <laughs> and <laughs> in continuing the theme of education, Geraldine, what's the difference between apple wine and cider then? So the, well, as Daniel explained, the cider, so it's a mix of apples and it's carbonated mm-hmm. and we back sweeten it with fresh apple juice. Mm-hmm. The apple wine is really made like a grape wine. So we would typically use a, probably one variety of apple or two. Mm-hmm. And we don't carbonate it and mm-hmm. we do not add any fresh apple juice. So it's really made like a grape wine. Okay. We haven't invented this. <laughs> I think in Germany, there are some very good apple wines. So I think the idea probably came from my personal background. Uh, I was born and bred in a vineyard in France and obviously experience of tasting mm-hmm. various apple products in Europe. It was logical and then to make apple wine. It's a little bit higher in alcohol as well, and you would really drink it like a white wine or like a wine in a meal, during a meal. Excellent. And speaking about another one of your products then, and when you have your alcohol-free cider, you've taken a, a more complex approach to that in that you're de-alkifying alcoholic cider for your non-alcoholic cider. Can you explain that approach or why you took that approach to it? Well, because it is a cider after all, and therefore I think certainly at some stage, whilst most cider and typically a cider would be alcoholic, it has to pass through that process to have that name put on the bottle, if you like. So I think that was the kind of purest approach that we took rather than, Mm. say, chucking some different apple juices together and adding asorbic acid to try and give it a a cider feel. So really the process is it would be similar to the one I outlined to you to create a base cider, Mm -hmm. whereby we've gone through the fermentation process, it's reached attenuation. And then the question is, is how do you remove that alcohol? And really there are two mechanisms. One is under vacuum, which requires a huge amount of liquid because the companies that do that sort of thing really need 50, 100,000 litres at a time, which obviously being a small business is not practical for us. Or the alternative is a mechanism called reverse osmosis. And that is the means by which the alcohol is then extracted from the cider. And then we, we blend it back. And that's how you end up with the finished process. But from our perspective, if you're going to put cider on the bottle, it has to, at least at some stage in its production cycle, have been that product. So I think that was the reason we took the approach that we did. Indeed, a commendably purest approach, you know, and it makes, per- makes perfect sense indeed. The other variants that you've made, you've made an apple and rhubarb craft cider in the past, and you've included cider and cucumber. How do you come up with these flavor combinations? And have you any plans for future flavor combinations? Well, when we started Stonewall back in 2010, obviously we were to a certain extent on the coattails of the microbrewers and we would be attending a lot of festivals and so forth. And you'd see that they would bring out these seasonals. Now, obviously the manufacturing process or the production process of beer is, is, is far shorter insofar as you're not dependent upon an annual cycle for your crop yield. You've got water and you can buy the ingredients. And so it's much easier to bring out seasonal ciders. But one of the things that we noticed was that it was kind of a double-edged sword for them. One was that everybody wanted the next new thing, which meant that they didn't necessarily build up 
substantial quantities of, of some base products. But by the same token, it gave them the opportunity to speak about new, different and innovative ideas as, as to how they could produce beer and deliver different taste profiles. So that's really where the, the thought process came from. Obviously, with the limitations that I've highlighted, we couldn't you know, turn out a seasonal on a regular basis. And by the same token, I did want lots of people to drink one or two of our products. But for those who wanted something slightly more esoteric or particular, we'd bring out these seasonals. So we aim to do one a year. We haven't always achieved that because it's a bit like the cutting room in, in a Hollywood uh, film studio. There are lots of disasters that end up on the floor, not literally, but ones that we decide not to proceed with. So the rhubarb one we were, we were really fortunate with. It's, 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 a, it's a, an incredibly uh, interesting vegetable, which has a very unique type of acid in it called oxalic acid, whereas apples and grapes would have malic acid in them, which makes it interesting. Unlike many, many other fruits or vegetables, when it's fermented, it actually retains a lot of its original characteristics. In other words, apple juice doesn't taste like cider, grape juice doesn't taste like wine, mm. whereas rhubarb, when it's fermented, tastes like rhubarb, fresh rhubarb. The only thing that doesn't come through to our frustration is the color, but otherwise it's, it's an absolutely incredible drink. So that's, that, when we kick that off, that had huge success for us. And, and I know we'll talk about that later, but it had tremendous success for us such in, to such an extent it has become a standard part of our product range. We only produce a small amount of our seasonals. We probably mm. produce maybe 6,000 liters of that a year, not least because it's extremely expensive to make. It's very mm. difficult to make. You know, you have to, you have to suffer for your art. So <laughs> the way you extract juice from a stick of rhubarb, because you, as you can imagine, it doesn't seem to be particularly juicy. The ideal way is chop it up into one inch lengths and then freeze it. And then once you've defrosted it, it's burst all the cells. So all of a sudden, it's mm. much easier to get the juice out of it. So that, that's, that's a lengthy process, but mm. it's hugely popular. So we, we do keep going. And you mentioned the others, cucumber, passion fruits. We try and use things with the exception of passion fruit. We try and use ingredients that we can obtain locally, or at least within the, the geographical area of Europe. And that's mm. something that, that we, we endeavor to do. But as I mentioned to you before, you know, R&D is a perpetual, we're in perpetual motion from a research and development perspective. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest challenges that we find, and so this is why, for example, like, you know, hats off to people like Wicklow, Wicklow Way Wines, is red fruits are extremely unstable. So blackberries, raspberries, strawberries, all things that grow locally, mm -hmm. to get a consistent flavor profile out of red fruit has been something that eludes us. You, sometimes you, 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 can, you can hit the jackpot. It's fantastic. It's like drinking fresh strawberry with apple cider. And sometimes it's, you know, that's slightly flat. It's, it's not got the, 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 the really floral aspects of, of rhubarb, or sorry, of, of strawberry. And, and therefore, we say, okay, well, we're not going to do this because, you know, there is huge cost associated with every seasonal that we bring out. So whether it be branding, whether it be different style bottling, mm -hmm. whether it be smaller quantities. So we need to make sure that we're going to get it right. So that's not to say that we won't ever bring out a red berry cider, but we, we might get there eventually, but it's a real challenge. So I don't know whether that answers your questions, but yes, we will continue to strive to do it. Yes, we'll try and do one a year. And we'll see where it takes us. But one of the things that we're absolutely sure about is that we don't want to put out something that's, you know, second tier, not, not something that we're 100% confident in that we feel is, is, is really going to be a good experience for our customers. And so, you know, we don't always hit the jackpot. We don't always bring something out, but it's our endeavor every year. 
I can appreciate the suffering for your art and you certainly are with your seasonals as you point out I mean it's not something that's done off the cuff by any stretch of the imagination it's the product of that perpetual R&D that you spoke of and you also have cask additions cider finished in whiskey casks and while this is common in whiskey and beer and I'm familiar with that how does this work and how does this affect the finished cider so to speak well it was a first for us we did this last year it came up to us and really I have to off my cap to Scott and Cameron up in eight degrees because obviously they had been working with Jemison on castmates and you know that started mulling things over could you do it with cider and you know there's they obviously did work with stout which is you know a strong flavor profile most ciders are, are a lot more delicate and discreet so how are we going to go about that and that was one of the interesting challenges so it had to be a bittersweet apple now bittersweet apples i didn't explain there are three principal different categories of apples there's culinary apples like bramley which we all know there are dessert apples which we generally buy in the supermarket which we you know eat at the table and then there's bittersweet and they're grown typically just for making cider you wouldn't generally eat them off the tree and they have a lot more tannin and astringency to them. So they, they, they pack a lot more welly to them than, say, for example, mm-hmm. a Jonica Red Cider, which is much more light, floral, crisp. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, OK, well, we'll give that a whirl. And, and we spoke to a, a distillery in East Cork and they very generously said, yeah, by all means. So they emptied a set of barrels, sent them over to us. And so literally it was, it was the most glorious smell. We pumped them full of bittersweet cider. We got this wonderful aroma shooting out of the uh, the hole at the top. I tell you, you got intoxicated just by giving it a good <laughs> sniff. And we left it in there for six months. And we didn't really know what to expect. Hmm. They were potentially thinking of using those barrels to see whether it would infuse flavor into whiskey if they put whiskey back in there. Hmm. So that's a, a, a work in progress, if you like. Hmm. And from our perspective, we took it out and there is a really complementary balance between the woody toasty smoked aspects of what you'd expect from from a bourbon barrel with some good whiskey characteristics which have been there in the three years but i'm really pleased to say that the the tannic bittersweet aspects of the apple juice and the cider have retained their presence so Mm -hmm. what you end up with is 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 a bittersweet cider it's it's a it's a high abv we took that cider out we then blended it with another base cider which hadn't been aged just to tone it down a little because the finished product comes out at nine and a half eight percent ABV and we have a very should I say onerous uh, duty rate on cider in Ireland much more mm-hmm. beer so the ABV does come into play in a big way mm-hmm. and you end up with uh, I, I think uh, something which has got a lot of punch it's quite rich it's got a great deal of depth it's got those smoky notes it's it's a, it's a really complex but enjoyable cider now it's in a 75 CL bottle and I guess at 90, 9.5%, you'd say it's a sharing bottle. But I tend to find when I open a bottle, I finish it myself. So uh, there you go. Good point, well made. <laughs> no, I, I can empathize. It's a, to your credit, you've been serial award winners. And on your site, you've listed these. You've Pomodoro, Blossom of Heron. How do the application processes work for all these awards? And I suppose, um, how did those awards then help Stonewell's profile, do you think? They are, well, they are very satisfying and rewarding to start with. We must be doing something right when we sure. uh, win an award, which is great. Sometimes it's, it's, it's really hard work, so it's, it's mm-hmm. uplifting to receive them. It is also obviously raising our profile a lot and our credential, and mm-hmm. it raises awareness because there is always some PR around it. Sure. It's very good in every aspect, obviously. It can be it can be a little challenging at times, though, because we perceive it to be very important for the consumer to see that there's some recognition or affirmation mm-hmm. of what we're doing. 
when you're asking about the process, some of it can be really protracted. So it might start in February and you're still sending samples in five months later and you don't get an answer until October. Hmm. We can lose track. Um, we forget. Oh, we put something. <laughs> oh, gosh. But it, it's, it, as Geraldine says, it's huge, hugely rewarding and, yeah. and it does bring good brand profile. And, and, and I think it, it reassures the customer that, that what, we're, what we're creating is a good product before they've acquired it. And on your website, then, you mentioned the trade shows you go to and the in-person events that Stonewell attends to spread the good word about your cider. How important, I suppose, is that sense of community to Stonewell? And how important is that as a marketing opportunity as well? It is very important to raise awareness like that, the awards. Mm-hmm. Also, it allows us to explain our products, why it is different from mm-hmm. any other product. And it gives the opportunity for the clients to taste it and really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. It's good to talk to people to explain what we do, mm-hmm. how we make it, especially the novel wine, which is very new. And mm-hmm. people have no idea what an apple wine is. They, many people have never heard of an mm-hmm. apple wine before. So, for example, I was in Bali Malu with the apple wine in November. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting because... Probably 99% of the people have never tasted apple wine before. Mm-hmm. They had no idea what to expect. Mm-hmm. And I could say that probably almost everybody were very pleasantly surprised when mm-hmm. they tasted it. So the reaction was very, very good. Excellent. And it was very important to be able to explain what an apple wine was. And it's an Irish wine and it's made in Ireland and it's, it's, it's completely natural and it's you know, it's better than the cheap wine from the supermarket, you know. Sure. And uh, the reaction was very, very good. I think people were very surprised, pleasantly surprised and very excited about it. Excellent. And I suppose those in-person events while coming back now during the pandemic, they weren't an option. So how have the awards, trade shows and marketing events changed, I suppose, or how did they change during the pandemic to meet that challenge? Were there more online events? Yes, I think that I think they were definitely everything moved online. You know, we would have been every year we would have been at uh, Bloom in the Park up in Phoenix mm-hmm. Park. We would have gone to as many trade shows that didn't have headline alcohol sponsors that would allow us to go. Mm-hmm. You know, we would have been very active in that space. So during the pandemic, obviously, that was you know game over. We didn't mm-hmm. get a chance to to do any of that. So there was a lot more emphasis placed on on online. And and I think you know we participated. There's a, a chap called Gabe Cook who who's known as the ciderologist and he he did a a worldwide tour of cider he did a couple of those on instagram tv and we participated in a number of other speaking forum events that we got the opportunity to do not dissimilar to this and mm-hmm. so yes it, it did move online there were a lot more forums to participate in which was useful mm-hmm. and obviously we redoubled our efforts from a new media marketing perspective to try and get the message out there because whilst it's always very difficult looking at trade shows and, and these things anecdotal in relation to you know the return on the time that you invest anecdotal info would would seem to to say that word of mouth whether it's virtual or in person remains a very important part for a small producer like ourselves for sure, but also I commend you on your website and the imagery that you use on social media. I mean, it's it's excellent. It shows the the effort that you've put into it, and it really it's it's an excellent website. And the as a someone who dabbles occasionally in photography, I really like the journalistic style you have to the photography that you've used in the site as well. Very well Thank done. You. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking to one of your competitors, perhaps. So, but Longville House, probably mispronounced, and Stonewell is Cork a hotbed for cider makers? Do you think? 
Longville House, excellently pronounced. <laughs> it, it, you know, I don't think we see each other as competitors. I think we see mm. each other as as colleagues in a in a in a on a journey, mm. trying to educate the consumer in relation to what the humble apple can actually deliver by way of a really complex and enjoyable drink. Mm. And as regards cork, I don't know whether we're a hotbed for cider makers, but I think we're probably the only county with two small producers in it. So uh, we might be uh, top of the ladder for that at the moment. Let's see how things progress. The How you describe it as a community of cider makers, it very much chimes with our experience in the rest of the series when we're speaking with distillers and brewers. And it's very much seen as a community and there's not a cutthroat competitiveness between the various brands, which is, as Tara said, if every industry was like this, there'd be world peace. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that's true. But I mean, just to throw out a few statistics, on average, OK, it's gone down slightly, but there's 60 million litres of cider consumed per annum in Ireland, in the Republic. And the craft producers probably represent, depends who you talk to, between 2 and 4%. So frankly, there's plenty of room for us. And at the end of the day, you know, each regional producer is selling and educating customers within their own region. Mm-hmm. And Cider Ireland, which is the Irish Independent Irish Cider Makers Association, is a body which which represents that where we do all get together and try and achieve that process so yeah i mean i think we're 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 more colleagues than competitors and i think our certainly in relation to longville and ourselves our styles and our approach are slightly different so there's complementarity rather than competition you spoke about educating the irish population as to what the humble apple can do i suppose do you think that the irish palate has changed and become more refined in recent years to better appreciate more complex ciders than what would have been available heretofore? Yes, I think people want to eat and drink better and better and better qualities. Sure. I think they are looking at more natural products, more locally made. Mm-hmm. They are learning, they are interested, they want mm-hmm. to know what's in the bottle, how it is made and the amount of calories and is it vegan, is it celiac friendly? Mm-hmm. So, yes. And and uh, one of the, I wouldn't say it's more refined, I think they're on the journey with us. At the end of the day, I think a large number of consumers weren't aware of the different styles of cider that were possible. So that it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a journey of discovery. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the provenance, provenance quality issue that Jardine referred to is absolutely key. I think tastes have changed as people have become familiar with different taste profiles. When we started Stonewell, we had one cider, which was the medium dry. Mm -hmm. That still represents the lion's share of our sales in Ireland. But I would say our dry cider now represents about 20%. So that's a significant Mm -hmm. uplift. So I think there is definitely an evolution as well, not only from from the provenance quality perspective, but also in, in taste profile. And I think when customers do you know, there's a lot about perception, people drinking with their eyes, people mm-hmm. having sort of received wisdom in relation to a product category. But when they start discovering things that are totally different, like an ice cider, and like an apple wine, mm-hmm. like a, a seasonal blend, you know, it opens up a, a vista which they hadn't considered before. And therefore, I think you do see an evolution. We will continue to see it. I mean, if it weren't for the microbrewers, we wouldn't have had Hop House 13. We wouldn't have had mm-hmm. three different styles of Smithics. These guys obviously have the scale and the distribution chain to make that mm-hmm. national, but it came about because of the microbrewers. I think from a cider perspective, we have a we have a long way to go. Not only is cider about one fifth of the size of beer consumption in Ireland, I think we need to start selling a bit more from a craft perspective, start being slightly more 
prominent in our profile within the media so mm -hmm. that we can begin to incentivize the industrial producers to be a little bit more inventive and adventurous in relation to their taste profiles. But I think ultimately it'll, it'll happen, I'm sure. And speaking to Jardine, you were saying that they want to see what it's made of. You want, they want to see that it's vegan. They want to see that it's organic, etc. What impact do you think sustainability has on people's choices now? And I noticed that you're involved in it from a sustainability and a bee population perspective. But what do you think the, do you think there's a growing appreciation of sustainably created products? I think that's absolutely key and fundamental and increasingly so. Both lifestyle and sustainability are key. I think from a sustainability perspective, we have an advantage insofar as our primary ingredient is grown in the country. So there are far fewer miles and transit required mm -hmm. for, for what we need to produce our product, which is handy. But, you know, there, there are multiple other aspects. What do we do with our byproducts? So, for example, our apple waste is fed to the cattle in the local community. Our sedimentary waste post-fermentation goes off to be composted to put into garden compost. The, the carbon footprint aspect is, is huge and it, and it is an increasing, increasingly at front of mind for the consumer and mm. therefore by definition for us. We also have young children. Mm. I think we're acutely aware of the problems facing us as a, as a globe. And so we need to do our bit as well. And, and as we move forward in our strategic goals for the business, that's something that factors in now, which certainly wouldn't have done 12 years ago. You spoke a little bit about it already, but your goals for 2022. What do you hope to achieve this year, folks, as hopefully we emerge from a pandemic? For the apple wine, I would love to see a little space in the wine menu in restaurants for something different and for the novel wine, mm -hmm. because each of them can be consumed along the meal, one with mm -hmm. cheese, one with dessert, one with a first course or fish or one with a main course. I really would like to see the apple wine on the wine menu as an alternative to the great wine. I look forward to seeing it there. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> so do I. Um, so do I. I think from a Stonewall perspective, I think we want, our, our number one goal is to, is to rebuild the business. Uh, we, we had prior to COVID about 90 plus percent of our volume went through the on-trade. So it was substantially impacted by COVID. Mm -hmm. I think as we do emerge from this, we will see growth. We will see development there. I think in, from an internal perspective, we need to put our house in order, recruiting people, putting more procedures in place and mm -hmm. trying to uh, become slightly more efficient. And our long-term goal, not just for 22, is to actually acquire and relocate the cider mill in its own orchard. So that mm -hmm. is a a project that has been underway since about the start of COVID, but it's a bit like the film with Richard Harris, The Field. Buying land ain't easy. So we're working on it, but that, that really is our, is, our, is our aspirational goal. Mm -hmm. And if we, could, if we could turn the sod in 22, that would be a great achievement. With that as a goal, is the idea to have a Stonewell Visitor Centre and a visitor experience for your cider stemming from that? or Yes, is the short answer. The whole aspect of agritourism coming back to sustainability, I think people want to see where their products come from. If they can walk around the orchard and see where the apple that goes into the bottle that they've got in their bag came from, sure. I think that's very important. And I think people need to make that connection because then they'll begin to understand the, the costs that we're all having to pay as we start to look at our levels of consumption and the way that we consume. 
Mm-hmm. And hopefully they can be part of the journey that we're in. So there is that aspect, most definitely agritourism. There's the educational aspect that we want to continue to do. And if we can do that, if you like, on our own canvas where we've created our own environment to impart that, that would be fantastic. And what we're also trying to do, which we've been doing for some time now, we have been contract distilling with a number of providers across the island for apple brandy, which has been aging. Some of it's been aging now for four years, is to introduce a small Calvados still as well. So we'd have the cider mill. We'd have the Calvados still. We'd have the opportunity for people to come and visit us and they could walk the orchards and, and see where it all from from bud to bottle. Brilliant. Farm to fork and bud to bottle. Excellent. Geraldine, Daniel, thank you so much. As I said, it's been an education. I consider myself to be far better educated now. Every good luck to you both in the business for 2022 and beyond. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for thinking of us.